0: I think there's this perception and understanding that train the way you fight, fight the way you train. But when you're in combat, it will change you. It will be different. And there's something, you know, kind of synonymous in the business space as well, in that business environments. Where, you know, have you had a hard day? Have you had to deal with a significant security issue as a CISO? I have. And let me tell you, it will change you. From
1: Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and this week we're back with Dr. Adrian Mayers, VP and CISO at Primera Blue Cross. To dig deeper into his expertise and personal journey, Together, we delve into his wealth of knowledge around insider threat management and intelligence and cover how he's defined his motivations by major life hurdles. It's not healthy to expect superhero CISOs, so should every CISO experience a breach? How do you train yourself to detect an adversary and formulate actionable intelligence? And in the face of unfair circumstances, how can you take action to achieve your goals? Adrian, thank you again for joining our now part two. Uh, For those that may not have caught part one, if you would, please introduce yourself again. Who are you?
0: So I'm Adrian Mears. I'm the vice president and chief information security officer at Primera Blue Cross here in Seattle. Thank you. for. If you are somehow
1: landing on part two, I would encourage you to go listen to part one. It will help you, I think, a bit. And not only is it high quality content, but it begins to introduce the guest. It's a rare thing here. Uh, I think we've only done this two or three times. So there's a reason for it. I want to shift into mental health and stress specifically in the ciso position we talked a little bit about kind of the desire of industry to have superhero security people or superhero ciso's and you use that term what is the negative effect of
0: superhero ciso's it's a great question and i appreciate it because when you think about and define your position that way it leaves very little room for error right the ability to make a mistake to course correct to be to be accepted for making a mistake and then you know and then course correcting it adds a tremendous amount of pressure and by extension stress on the individual and it can manifest itself obviously with the individual but also can be extended to the teams right To the kind of that downline, people supporting and building this program out can start to feel it when a CISO is feeling that stress and it starts to manifest itself in a negative way. It could be problematic.
1: But isn't it the charter of many organizations that the CISO is supposed to prevent all the bad
0: things related to cyber threats? I'll inject one word there, attempt to prevent all of the bad things happening to an organization or a government entity, for that matter, right? I mean, there's all of these organizations. I say, I kind of lay it out this way. If there weren't threat actors that were trying to penetrate our environments, trying to steal our data, corrupt our data, destroy our data and our systems, then no problem. Good day every day. But... The threat actor gets a vote. So the fact that they're coming after us makes the situation at times untenable, right? You can't think that you're always going to be able to prevent. What you need to do is to be consistently attempting at a high fidelity and a high level of motivation to stop. So protecting and defending the environment, the organization, the data, what, what have you. That's the measure, not whether something goes bump in the night or not. Because there are threat actors that are out there literally trying to make something go bump in the night.
1: We spoke on the earlier show about kind of lacking a definition of good, or at least that was my theory. And you gave a lot of great feedback on kind of how to approach that idea. If there's no definition, or maybe there's opportunity to further define what the good is, then the inverse of that is, is there could then be many probably bad ciso jobs would you ever recommend someone take a bad quote unquote ciso gig for any reason we we talked a bit about this but i'm kind of baiting you a little bit here but would you recommend it is it ever okay to take a bad ciso
0: gig it's an interesting question and i guess you got to think about what's to gain from doing that for the individual but there's something even deeper than that there's a need And let me be clear, some of these, you know, CISO jobs are poorly defined, but that doesn't negate the fact that there's a need to protect that organization and the information of said organization. And, you know, when I think about it from a U.S.-centric perspective, I think about the contribution to national security, because all of these organizations need somebody fighting, protecting, and defending their interests, and by extension, the interests of the country. So you have to have your eyes wide open going into it. This is going to suck. Let's be honest, right? It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. What are the levers that I can pull to make it better? What do I need to communicate to my direct reports, my manager, you know, executive what have you before I enter into this? I think you know, being transparent and having that dialogue is absolutely important, but know what you're getting into. But yeah, there are times that you just got to take that leap if it's your first gig and you're just looking to get experience, right? You want to get your street cred. There are going to be times where you're going to have to walk into a not so ideal position. Yeah, and that's maybe maybe it's a little bit foolish to take the bad
1: gig, quote unquote, but if you're tough enough to do it, then then maybe that's what you do to sort of earn the stripe, right?
0: Well, that's exactly it. Now, I'll give you a, you know, just a quick historical for instance for me. Years ago, when I started out in security, I literally was a you know a security guard standing in pharmacies, you know, stopping people from shoplifting and what have you. But when I was working for security companies early days, I remember there was a division. It was our mobile security division, and it wasn't doing great. And I remember talking to the chief operating officer, and I said, "Hey, I'd be interested in taking that on. That baby is ugly." I want to do something. I want to parent that. I want to nurture it. I want to build something out. And they were like, hey, really? You want to sign up to do that, knowing the state that it's in? And I said, absolutely. Because if I can turn that around, then you'll have confidence in me to turn some other things around in this organization. And he said, hey, you know what? You're on. Do your damnedest, right? And I went in there and I was able to turn it around and was able to gain respect and credibility. And then that helped launch you know, my career in the security space.
1: I absolutely love that. I It kind of reminds me also of, I think everyone needs to work one really bad breach. And I mean one that, I'm not talking a bad week, a a bad month. I'm talking, give someone a double or triple the amount of work required for the next nine months or year. And then only then prepare for the extra audits and all the other crap that comes with it, because you're going to learn a lot about yourself through that. And I think the example you gave is very much the same way. Like take something that's surprised people, take something that no one else sees value in and find the value in it.
0: You're absolutely right. I think, I guess I think back from a, a military perspective, right? You know, where there's that question, have you ever been deployed? Have you ever been in combat? Why do people ask that question? Because I think there's this perception and understanding that train the way you fight fight the way you train but when you're in combat it will change you it will be different and there's something you know kind of synonymous in the business space as well in that business environments where you know have you had a hard day have you had to deal with a significant security issue as a CISO i have and let me tell you it will change you <laughs> that's one of the questions
1: i love to ask in general typically to leadership is uh, when I'm you know hiring for you know managers, directors, whatever, is in a professional sense, I, I don't yet want to go into your personal life, but describe to me your worst day or if I'm evaluating the merit of a position, what is the bad day factor of that job? So if I'm comparing managers and directors and which is who should get maybe the more budget or the better raise or the more funding for staff's raise, what is the bad day factor of that division of that responsibility of that framework because there's a difference there's a bad day factor and to your point you know what are the personalities that you put in there what is the worst day they've had in their past how well equipped have they been some of the best responding people i've worked with was an ad hoc response during breach response they were they were veterans say so, look All problems come back to me, but I need you to leave here right now and don't come back until X is done. And it's direct, but I knew that if you remove all of the silliness that happens in big companies, they look, I just need you to get it done. And you can go as hard and as fast as you need to just get it done. They perform the absolute best. And there's a reason flat out. I think that's an excellent point. You know, have have what describe your worst day. Have they been deployed? Have they seen combat? Any other thoughts
0: on that? Absolutely. I think, you know, when I think about software development, right, I think about, or, or system development, if you will, right, smoke testing, testing the integrity of that system, right, putting it through its paces. Because what does that do? That gives you a higher level of assurance that if something happens in the real world, in real life, not simulation, this is not a test, there's at least something to be said for like, okay, I've been here before. I've dealt with this before. I'll give you, for instance, I was watching a documentary on, you know, special operations forces. This was an SAS operator, and he was talking about his bad day. He got captured by enemy combatants, terrorists, was stripped down to his skivvies and tied to a wall to sit on a concrete floor. And in his training, he went through similar scenarios. So, in his mind's eye, He kept his wits about him because he said to himself, I've been here before, and I got through that, and I'll get through this, period, full stop. And he was able to to fight his way out of of that situation. And I I think there's something to be said, and this is why I go back to train the way you fight, fight the way you train. It's important to have that confidence behind you. There's nothing like a real-world experience. Never waste a critical situation or a security incident because there's always something that you can learn from that. No question. I want to go into
1: the creation of great capabilities. We talked about this and we talked specifically about insider threat management. And you brought this up and I think it's fantastic as a topic. You also mentioned a bit about zero trust, which it gets sort of thrown around. Everyone's sort of using the term. But back to insider threat management, what is that capability and and why did you have a particular interest in that?
0: It's a great question. So, I think, and this, you know, this kind of goes back to something I was talking about in part one of the interview around playing video games and just a little bit of an affinity around the intelligence community, spies. How do you catch a spy? And there was an affinity that grew over time, and actually, and and we'll talk about it later on in some of my research around counterintelligence. And thinking about the counterintelligence mission sets and what does that mean for an organization when it comes to insider threat and insider threat management, the understanding that even though you do all the vetting that you need to do on the front end, that certain triggers happen in people's lives that potentially could take them down a road of being malicious or just making sure that you have controls in place for that inadvertent unintended consequence if somebody decides, oh, whoop, I made a mistake and there's something that happens. But really, at the core, it's about that malicious insider, that person that has justified the rationale in their brains, has opportunity, motive, and then goes and executes. That's what I need to look at. So there's two perspectives that I look at in the security program, external threats and internal threats. So it's something that's near and dear to my heart. And I've done some education on it, lots of reading on it, and it really does come down to a lot of psychology, understanding human behavior, and then leveraging technology to be able to pick up the signals that people are putting down that they don't even realize they're doing. I think
1: even upstream, so Insider to me is, even in the last couple of years, has evolved, or I think I'm hearing the way it's described from an analytic standpoint, it's changing slightly. I was at a roundtable with some folks and for the defender, there's this burden of defense. And often if you're depending on what you're using to identify, but in some cases, the signals that you mentioned might be limited depending on the capability of the defender. But you don't know always, and I'd like to know if you agree or if you would make a further sort of addendum to this, are they natively malicious, meaning are they pissed at the company and they want to do harm? Are they compromised in that, like we've seen with lapses, and they say, hey, just sell me your access, whether it's an access token or the credentials in, so compromised in that way. So, they weren't natively mad at you, but they don't like you enough to say no to the offer? Or are they negligent, just sloppy? Or are they compromised in a different way where their credentials, or maybe their system was compromised with malware? Maybe their credentials were inadvertently scooped up as a part of some larger attack. Or is it a bad business process? It's a well meaning, but a poor business process. Now, in the end, we will identify if it's really an insider or not, but in that gray space, you're left with this platter of options that the defender then or the investigator has to figure out. First off, do you loosely agree, or would you modify those sort of five flavors before you get to the final definition of closing out to know that it was an insider or not? Do, does do those analytic
0: possibilities resonate, or would you change them? No, I think they absolutely resonate. I think you know, based on all of those five, you're thinking there's a common denominator there, right? and that's deviation from the norm. There's a kind of that fork in the road and that individual for whatever reason went a different direction than how they usually go. So when we talk about signal, it's not about signal to get to a conclusion immediately. It's about signal, you know, collecting those signals that intelligence if you will to be able to know that something has happened and then start a workflow after that. You will determine if it was malicious, if it was inadvertent, compromised, you know, paid off, whatever it is, whatever that motivator is or what have you. But there's a deviation to that behavior of the individual. That's what you need to be able to pick up on and then start your your investigation, right? I mean everybody wants to be Agatha Christie in some way shape or form when it comes to this, right? Everybody loves a good investigation, if you will, a good like, oh, I wonder that who done it. That's what's happening here, but you have to know that something bad has happened before you start to be, you know, Inspector Poirot, right? He's fantastic, by the
1: way. <laughs> like maybe one of the coolest characters I can think of, honestly and they've rebooted those films recently too which are pretty good great reference now i think for those listening i think this is a wonderful way a lot of people may not own insider threat management or the entire umbrella meaning this, the ciso but i'm seeing it being owned more and more i think the best programs are multifaceted and that there's multiple groups that participate in the capability whether that's hr legal physical security fraud ciso whatever you know More often than not, the CISO is owning a lot of the tech and the core workflow, what I'm seeing. But for those that are looking to define, you know, listen to Adrian's words on this. It all begins with the deviation from the norm. Whatever it is you want to follow, you know, do you have the capability to identify
0: that? And then how is it labeled and how do you proceed with it? Really wise approach. If I may, just to add one thing there, because I think you talked about, you know, these kind of programs take a village. And what do I mean by that? You you know, you talked about some of the the key groups there, legal, HR, ethics, you know, internal audit, physical security. Even though this may land primarily under the purview of, of the CISO, having those other groups and entities involved, there's a little bit of a CYA piece to this, right? You're technically building out an internal NSA capability, right? The ability to harvest signal, you know, at scale when we think about privacy or perceived privacy of an employee within an organization, and there's varying views to this, but you're gathering a lot of data that people don't think that you're gathering. So having those other groups to not only be a backstop, but to collaborate with will keep you out of trouble in a significant way. So make sure that you're consulting and collaborating with other teams to build out this program. This is not one of those things that you should go it alone with. Yes. In fact,
1: it's a recipe for problems. I think just for general, great incident response, you need to have. So when we identify problems in an environment, how is it that we collectively respond? And there's areas that you don't want your staff jumping into because you may ruin the investigation. You don't want to screw it up for fraud or for legal or for HR. You have to know limits and boundaries, and you're not going to get anywhere unless you have really a charter that's set that says, hey, like this is the area that I'm going to cover. This is the capability we're going to build. This is the role of everyone. And to know how far do you take, maybe you'd spend a second on that, how far does the CISO's staff take something before there is a
0: a warm handoff? Because you're now beyond your your area of operations. No, you're you're absolutely right. And obviously in the space we talk about people, process, and technology a lot. For these kind of programs, the process is so, so important to define it before you go and start talking to vendors or VARs or what have you, pulling in all of this great, very invasive technology, which you're going to need eventually. You want to define all of those different relationships, those roles, responsibilities, you know, kind of a, a racy document, if you will, so that everybody understands. What are we trying to accomplish here? What are you doing? What am I doing? Run through some use cases and scenarios, you know, kind of whiteboard this a little bit, play it out, because you'll start to identify, hey, if you go back in, or for example, if you take a forensic image of a hard drive and, you know, that chain of custody is broken, you've just compromised that case. We can't sue. We can't do what we want to do criminally. Maybe we have to go to a civil litigation posture because of that. You got to work all of those things out in advance before, so that you understand where those boundaries are, where those red lines are. And there's nothing like having those conversations in that group setting where people are coming in and, and weighing in. People that are operating in the cybersecurity space have a perspective based on on their experience and what have you. You're going to get additional insights from others as they weigh into the problem set. So you decided to get your PhD
1: in information security, specifically in the intel space. First off, what prompted you to do additional study? And would you recommend, there's many people who sort of struggle to say, okay, how do I do more to build myself up? So first off, maybe answer, what did you specifically study? And would you recommend it for everyone or not?
0: Well, it's a great question. So my doctorate is in business administration, specializing in international business. And my dissertation was on economic espionage, cyber espionage, specifically looking at national security and U.S. competitiveness. So a lot of research around Russia, China, and other threat actors that were pulling data out of organizations. And then people say I'm a glutton for education. So I finished that. And then I went to Harvard and I did a cybersecurity graduate certificate there. I went to the American Military University and did a counterintelligence certificate there, graduate certificate there. And now I'm thinking about, you know, what's the next thing that I want to go and learn? And the reason for me specifically is that I'm very curious. I have a lot of questions about a lot of things. And I enjoy that kind of academic setting because it allows me to dive into the theory, to look at case studies and what have you. And how I always test it out is like, okay, that's cool. I did all that book learning. How do I apply it to what I'm doing, you know, here in the real world, if you will? So there's definitely a motivation there to learn. But when I think about what motivates me truly, a couple of things happen. And I think back to, you know, Lieutenant Jason Redman in his book called Overcome, he talks about life ambushes. And I had a couple of life ambushes, and one in particular was I lost my eight-year-old daughter to a heart condition in 2009. And that loss, its hard to articulate into words, was so significant, so detrimental to my perspective on life in general that I had to make some choices. And one of the things that I actively chose to do was to, to go back and to maximize my envelope you know, went through grief counseling and what have you. And I remember, you know, one of the counselors saying, you need to accept that throughout the rest of your life, you're going to carry your own backpack of experiences and and aspirations and what have you. But in order to continue to move forward, you're also going to have to carry your daughter's backpack. You're also going to have to think about her aspirations, you know, the life that she wasn't able to live. And that was that was just a huge motivator for me. So on those those sunny Saturdays in the summer in Seattle, you know, it's it's not always raining. I remember sitting and you know, reading article after article, going through my doctorate and before that my master's degree, and thinking about what's my why? Why am I doing this? What's motivating me? I'd rather be out riding my motorcycle or what have you, but I'm here doing this. Why am I here doing this? Why am I invested? When doing that for my daughter, being the best version of myself for her was absolutely critical and paramount and continues, obviously, to this day. So I have more questions and I'm going to seek more answers. Has your why changed since 2009? It's expanded. I've been able to add more things to it. But at the core, that's always why I'm doing it but I've gained additional understanding and additional motivation based on research on talking to people just as you get older, right? You gain more experiences, more interactions, and you start to gain more, more insight. And then you translate that into motivation. And I, you know, I think one of the things that I was talking about it before was around national security. As I was going through that research, you know, for my dissertation, A lot of things were coming out, right? As I was reading those articles, as I was gaining that information, I was like, wow, our prosperity in this country is under attack. I need to think about national security in a different way. What can I do as an individual going forward to contribute in a positive way?
1: It's a little more well understood now, but back when I was introduced into this and was working particularly against folks that were involved in foreign espionage and responding to them, many people didn't believe it was a real thing. They didn't believe, why would they be interested in us, they being a nation state in this private company? And they had to learn, uh, it became painfully clear to them why over time. But initially, the idea was thought of, specifically, I was referred to as smoke and mirrors when I raised the issue, some of what, and I, and I did look over at least the initial elements of your dissertation, which is why I made the intel an espionage comment. It's funny how now our perception has changed on that just in a short couple of years uh, as, a, as a country, on the private side in particular.
0: You're absolutely right. And what's driving this public-private dialogue now, and I would say reestablishing trust in a meaningful way, is greater understanding of the threat. I hear the term, you know, fair uncertainty and doubt being thrown around in this space quite a bit, but there is also something called reality and acceptance, and then taking that in and then pivoting and moving forward and and actually doing something about it, right? Why do we talk about actionable intelligence? Because the word action is expected after you gather this information. Right. Which, as a sidebar,
1: it's funny how many organizations, if you talk to a CISO or director security and ask if they have an Intel program, they'll say, Oh yeah. And okay, well, what are you doing with it? Like, what are your goals? How do you measure success with it? Uh, what are your actual business requirements? Most of them, if you asked about the requirements, most of them don't have an answer in most organizations, they're just, Loading indicators into a SIM, doing loading and matching, and wasting time is kind of the beginning and end that I see. Some have evolved beyond, and some do a great job. Financial services does a wonderful job. There are several very prominent ISACs that are fantastic, including healthcare. But it's interesting, it becomes almost intentional busy work that's not very fruitful, so the action is actually very little. I see this this is sort of rampant. I don't know if you've
0: got a a position or a thought on or set of experiences around this. I will distill them down to a couple. So you, you mentioned HISAC. So I'm, I'm on the board of directors there. And just tremendous work being done in that space. The ability to share salient intelligence to healthcare organizations. And healthcare has a lot of entities, right? It's a very large ecosystem. And one that's obviously being targeted aggressively by nation state, as well as organized cyber criminals today. So... It's interesting when people say, yeah, I have an Intel program and I just had this conversation this week about how do you define that? And one of the definitions at Primera specifically for us is that we think about threat intelligence as full spectrum intelligence. What do I mean by that? By leveraging things that are coming in through those feeds, but also gaining context, being able to build out indicators of compromise, going deeper leveraging MITRE to understand TTPs of threat actors. What's motivating them? How are they organized? What are the things that we can glean from open source intelligence to pull together a more holistic picture? Because when you understand what's motivating a threat actor and how they're going to come at you, you then have the ability. You know, we talk about the NIST framework quite a bit, right? And I always say that there needs to be one more thing in front of that, and it's anticipate. Anticipate that something's going to happen and try to gain as much information as you can. The term OODA loop comes to mind, right? Try to get inside the OODA loop of that threat actor. So it's a great start. If you're just starting off and you just have some threat feeds and you're feeding it into a sim, maybe you have some SOAR capabilities or what have you, but don't stop there. There's so much information out there and you can gain some really interesting insight and context to help your program be effective, and efficient. So the way I kind of define my program is it's threat intelligence-led and risk management-based. Right. Yeah, that's really good. I I think for those that may not be familiar, it's observe, orient,
1: decide, and act on that loop. For those that may be uh, new to them or unfamiliar, just OODA, if you're going to look it up at home, but that's sort of a foundation in typically military intelligence, but also uh, in the field and applies directly to What we do in the security field for those uninitiated, as I often say, I think that's fantastic. And a great friend of mine says, intelligence should drive maneuvers. And I completely agree in terms of what you're doing and what success is through your research specific to espionage. Was there anything that you picked out that was surprising beyond belief within your research, or a perspective that you formed that would maybe surprise the consumer or the message or, or the information, something that, that most people
0: get wrong or would be surprised about? I think there's a couple of things that come to mind. One's a little bit more obvious, and that's just how much data is being vacuumed up by our adversaries. In so many different verticals and industries, it's staggering. I think the other piece, though, that was quite a surprise to me was that from a U.S. perspective now, thinking about allies and how, <laughs> how allies gather information on us as well, that was a big surprise. I was not expecting that until you really kind of unpack the research, because I was like, wow, well, they're allies. They're either part of NATO or some other entity or organization. I'm surprised that they're conducting intelligence operations in the U.S. And I want to be careful here. I'm not saying against, but they're gathering information based on things that are happening in this country. How they use that information, how they use that intel, that could vary. But I was surprised to understand that there was a lot of intelligence operations that were going on and being conducted by entities that I would think to be allies of the U.S.
1: Right. right. That wouldn't have applied resources to the collection uh, or acquisition of resource stateside. But you wouldn't think
0: that someone in five eyes would be doing that. Exactly. But guess what? There was a couple of aha moments for me around that. And I felt quite naive when I was reading So I was like, wow, okay, of course. They have a perspective. They have a set of national interests. They have their mechanisms, their intelligence apparatus, and they're going to gather information to make the best decisions. Yeah, I get it now. That was one of the interesting that came out of that research. I am dumbfounded by
1: the number of organizations that agree to do joint ventures in certain areas of the world. I won't even say where. Those who know me know what I'm referencing, but that agree basically, like you're signing a business deal to have your stuff stolen effectively.
0: Oh, yeah. And you're absolutely right, right? And when you think about cutting away the cruft and getting to the root It really is about money, right? It's about money, influence, but really, again, comes back down to money, right? And the ability to leverage those funds acquired in those hostile environments to maybe go off and do other things. So there's this justification that sets aside all of those constraints and distastefulness. Well, it's going to be super lucrative. So I guess that's what we're doing. That's the expectation of our shareholders. So I guess that's what we're doing. It's interesting how we justify some of those moves. Blows my mind.
1: Absolutely blows my mind. What it is, in my opinion, is, is near-term, quarterly earnings-driven decisions when you're dealing with an adversary that thinks in terms of the next hundred years. And over time, you are going to lose that fight. Right now, you might win. You might have a bonus in, in hand. But yeah, I see that all over the place, and it's killer. I want to shift gears a little bit. We've spent now a little bit of time speaking. We had a little bit of an introductory call, but we had a a really good chat about just a simple question and not about why did you go into additional studies? We kind of covered that already. But talk to me a little bit about why you choose or are even more proud to put doctor in front of your name and to make sure that that's out there in a strong way. There's a couple of angles on this, but I want to spend a second. I thought this was something else at first, and I was surprised, but I want you to share with the listeners what, tell us about the motivation
0: and reasoning behind that specifically. People will have different perspectives on this, but for me, being a black man from Canada, living in the U.S. now, you know, a dual citizen, it was made very clear to me at an early age that I absolutely had to be better. And what do I mean by that? That the societal constraints were you know, potentially against me. I was going to have hurdles that others were not going to have to jump over. And in order to survive and, dare I say, thrive, I would have to work twice as hard and When I did that, when I went and got my doctorate degree and continue to educate myself, I'm super proud of that. And the ability to compete with confidence has been very enlightening. But I never forget about why I had to do that. What were those things that were in front of me that I had no control over, right? Those weren't levers that I could change. But. There's something to be said about being able to understand your environment and then take some semblance of action. My action was to get educated so that if I didn't get a position, it was because I had big ears or something like that. It wasn't because I didn't have enough education under my belt. I mean, seriously, that was a big deal for me. And things are changing. There's more awareness, but those barriers are still still out there. It's totally unfortunate, but I think there was something to be said for, okay, I'm going to have to fight. I'm going to have to figure out what I can do. And once I figure that out, I'm going to go and do it. And that was really this huge motivator and path for me to become extremely educated in a number of things. So I may be you know, operating as a subject matter expert in cyber and you know intellectual property protection and what have you, but understanding business was the impetus for me to go and get my MBA. Because if I understood business, then I could go anywhere. Because whether it be products or services, it was still business. So I had to understand the fundamentals. And then I just kept going from there. For the listener
1: that is a person of color that feels like there are, because there are, unnatural barriers, one of the routes you you chose to push through that, is what you just mentioned. Hey, I'm going to make sure no one's ever going to have to say, well, you know what? He doesn't have enough schooling. He doesn't understand this stuff well enough. You doubled and tripled down on that. With that lens, is there anything else that you would recommend to the listener that feels like they're in that same spot? Maybe they're not ready for their PhD. Maybe they're not in a spot even to do a master's. Maybe they've not finished their undergrad. Do you have advice in a general sense for that listener who feels like they're in that spot? They need some energy. They need some advice, maybe some motivation
0: that from you using your story to get them going. Any other words of wisdom there? Yeah, there's a couple of things that come to mind. You know, I don't want to sound like LeBar Burton here, but reading is fundamental. And what do I mean by that? Read many things often. I read poetry, novels biographies, obviously technical textbooks and things of that nature. I read, I listen to audiobooks. I'm also, you know, very visual, so I'm on YouTube a lot. Pulling in information. I always find that the more I know, and I, I, I joke I joke about this with my wife. I say, I'm getting ready for my shot at Jeopardy. So I, I just I need to consume as much information as possible. But There's a muscle that you build. There's and this goes back to, you know, my statements around being curious. You gotta identify all of the channels that you can that make sense for you to to gain that knowledge and wisdom. And reading has been a just a huge bonus for me. And I I never used to like it before. It's like, ah, that feels like work. That's what you do for school. But then that changed for me. And actually it was funny because it changed for me because I I started reading John Grisham. Actually was the firm. And I had this aha moment. I was like, oh, wow, this is like a movie in my head. This is amazing. Look at the the level of detail and the texture of the words in the description. Like, it was just so visceral. And I just fell in love with it and then started reading all kinds of things, right? You know, fiction and nonfiction. But I always had the understanding that my ability to read and consume and comprehend information was going to be my ticket. And I'll add another point onto this. And this goes back to, you know, ultimately, you know, systemic racism and some historical things about people of color having the ability to read. I mean, here I am today, 2022, surrounded by information in abundance. There's almost a sense of duty that I do something with that because others that came before me literally would be killed for having the ability to read a written word on a page. First, I just want to say, How valuable your perspective is on
1: this. Knowledge and your perspective is so powerful. We appreciate you sharing it with us here on the show. Again, this is some of these topics have been a bit sensitive, not always easy to share, but we're not going to get better at all this unless we can talk openly about it. So thank you so much. We are kind of coming to the close of the show. Actually, two of them. Thank you again. Is there any last bit of advice you'd like to leave our listeners with?
0: Well, a couple of things. First of all, I want to tell you how thankful I am deeply that you brought me on the show. It's been great. And I think something that I would leave the listeners with is to remain curious. And what do I mean by that? There are so many interesting questions out there that have answers. And when I think about remaining curious, I want to continuously ask those questions. So I would, just, I would just leave the listeners with that. Remain curious. There's a lot of amazing things out there, but you're not going to see them. You're not going to experience them if you don't ask the question. That's wonderful.
1: Thank you so much, Adrian. It's been so much of a pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.